Um, we're just joking about the fact that after that first half presentation, it's surprising that anyone made their way to the counter. <laughs> but uh, there we are. Um, we've got time for conversation, and uh, Ken uh, is going to make his way up and down the middle with the microphone. If you've got a question or a contribution to make, just catch my eye, and please don't start speaking until you have the microphone, okay? Now, up in the mezzanine, if any of you want to make a contribution, no problem, just let me know, and if you come down to the foot of the steps, we can get the microfo microphone to you there. So, um, it's really open season. Um, any, anyone want to catch my eye first? We'll, we'll, we'll start over here, yeah, and then we'll come to you, and then we'll come to you. Okay, Ken, if you're up there, thanks. Thank you. Um, I would be the most interested to hear what you thought about the part of your discussion uh, in regards to equality. Because we, we were discussing at the table, unless you've got an equal society, you've not got a population that's able to make the, the proper choices in regards to obesity, employment, transport. And I don't know if anybody in the, in the, the room seen the, the programme last week, about uh, the children in poverty and it was extremely poignant because it was done from the point of view of the, the children. There was, there was no documentary person there saying how they should feel or, or what they should say. They were saying it as it was for themselves and their problem wasn't obesity. It was the, the reverse. It was starvation in a lot of cases. It was lack of education. Uh, it was the, 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 the total abandonment of how they actually felt and the, the goodwill of who they were and what they were. And put this in context of the global village in which we live, we've, we've always got statistics, maybe a third of the, the population in the world living in dire poverty and starvation. So obesity isn't a problem for them. You know, we're obviously talking in the, the Western world context here. Um, so I, I don't think we can address these things and, until we can address equality, people having their money in the Cayman Islands and Liechtenstein and so on and so forth. Lots of people having, well, very small people having lots and lots of wealth, lots and lots of resources, and the vast majority having nothing. Um, thank you for bringing that issue up. I could have equally chosen inequality as the theme of something which um, is built into our society, basically. I mean, in public health terms, in 1979, Sir Douglas Black brought out his very famous report on inequality and the impact it was having on health, particularly child health. And it showed exactly the picture that that Poor Kids documentary was showing. Um, and it's interesting, he, he, he was commissioned by the Labour government and Mrs. Thatcher was in power by that stage. And um, they didn't like what he, what he wrote. And they brought out his report on a bank holiday and they... They brought out 50 copies of it. Um, but people got a hold of it, and it's still a bestseller, actually, the Black Report. But there's then been the Aitchison Report. And now we have the Marmot Report. And actually, inequalities in health are every bit as bad, if not worse. So the point I would make there is that we should, just as with obesity, we can't imagine that the tricks that we've been trying so far are going to solve it. And that it's actually built into the very structure of our society. Although I said the life expectancy in Glasgow in, 19, uh, in 1830 was 34, there was still an inequality then. Um, now, 
that's why I'm saying this is what's exciting as well as scary about living at the time that we do. If it's true, and I think we could argue about that. There's plenty of people, my colleagues, who say we could reverse inequalities. Well, I think we could in the way we could reverse obesity. In theory, we could. But in practice, we're not willing to do so. But, okay, here's the thing. Um, let's just do a quick riff on, on climate change and carbon. Yeah? Basically, if we don't limit the rise in global temperature to 2 degrees Celsius, we get feedback loops that cause a takeoff in temperature, giving us 4, 5, 6 degrees, which basically is the end of our civilization. So we all have an interest in stopping that happening. Would you not agree? Yeah? And the only solution would be a global solution. It wouldn't matter how smart we are here in Europe if other parts of the world don't do it. The only global solution that will hold is one that is transparently fair. Fair to Brazilians as it is to Africans, as to Asians, as it is to Europeans, as it is to North Americans. And the only definition of fairness is everyone gets the same. Now, there are ways of doing this. Um, just briefly deal with this. There's my credit card, okay? It means I can draw money from my bank account. If we were also given a carbon account, such that every time we buy petrol, pay a bill, money not only comes off our bank account, but off our carbon account, that would stop us using carbon. It would start you thinking, how much carbon are they using in this? If we all had the same carbon account, I could have thousands of pounds in my bank account. If I've spent up my carbon account, I'm not going to be able to buy anything. Can you see how equalizing that would be? How fair that could become? And how the driver of all being genuinely in the global warming predicament together could be the game changer. And very briefly, I was in the Pyrenees in the summer, and there were people in a village there, and they told us stories of how in the Middle Ages they used to fight a war every summer with the people in the next village. Because yeah, the snow's melted, they have a wee battle with them. And they spoke a slightly different accent, and they were seen as other. Now, if you went in your time machine back to the Pyrenees, and you said to them, look, there'll be a day when you'll all speak a language called French, and you'll all voluntarily pay taxes so that people in that next valley, and indeed the whole of the country, will be able to go to school and have hospitals and pensions. Would they believe you? Now, equally, when I say there'll be a day when we'll all have a carbon ration, and we'll all stick to it because that's... Does that sound utopian? Does a bit, doesn't it? But no more utopian than the change from the Middle Ages to the modern era. That was a long answer to a very important question. Yes, my query is, you talked about um, well-being. And in fact, I was wondering whether you meant, and the global village, as we were ending here, is it more human worth, human value? Mm. Because that, to me, seems to have got lost somewhere. Um, and the second point I want to make here is, I know it's not uh, fashionable any longer at all, but Karl Marx, for example, he said that in, in Marxism, in communism, as he conceived it, it wouldn't happen until it was global. And I think it's very relevant yep. to the talk. We, yeah. we, yeah. we are listening, okay. you know, okay. very interesting. Um, Thank you. Quick response. It doesn't need much to be said about this. You're quite right to highlight that concepts like well-being 
are not as deep as concepts like human worth, the nature of a human being, how we associate with each other, which I think is at the heart of it. So I'm simply agreeing with you. I use well-being because we have measures of it. In my world, we've, we, we, I don't know what the index of human worth has done in the last 50 years. I can show you graphs of what well-being or depression and things like that. So that's why I use what I've done. Marx is an interesting character. So much of what Marx says about our economy and modernity has come true. Um, what he says about the inevitability of, inevitability of boom and bust and bubbles and the unsustainability of capitalism seems to be coming true before our very eyes. Do I want to see a return to doctrinaire Marxism and all that brought in the last century? No, I don't. So that's the conundrum. I think someone needs to take these ideas and represent them for our moment in a way that gets us past and acknowledges the danger that you can't go global by forcing people. And that what I feel we have to work for is a change in human consciousness. Um, and you might say, gosh, that sounds a bit highfalutin and silly. But, I mean, you know, back in the Middle Ages, it was one or two who started saying that the world was different. Galileo or Newton or so on, yeah? A hundred years later, there's 15, 20% of the population see it differently. Today, all do. That's how these things happen. So... Someone was saying to me, what can we do? I think we can work on our own consciousness. We can do practical things. We can link up with others. Um, surveys in America suggest that about 20% of the American population would now see the world in the kind of terms we're talking about. 20% is a lot. That's very positive. Yeah, very positive. <laughs> so, there we go. Uh, just before uh, you ask your question, can I see who might be next? Uh, one here, anybody else? Uh, okay, right, you first. In the U.S., since about the 1980s, the Conservative Party has entered a program of bankrupting the government in order to crash the social services. And in conjunction with, really, the single party that exists in America, which is the Business Party, uh, have taken this, this course. And... Part of it is, is not only the, the crashing of the social services like Medicare and Social Security, but also um, wrecking the government, uh, wrecking the education system, drawing money out of it, um, and a process of wrecking the um, – there's, uh, there's a book out called The Wrecking Crew, which details how the um, conservative party, and rather than – eliminating uh, a bureau or a, or, a, or a piece of the bureaucracy just makes it incompetent. And so if you, look at, if you look at the tax subsidies, particularly on corn and beef and other manufactured food products, you'll see that they are pushing what we call chips, crisps, um, it's cheaper to buy a McDonald's hamburger than it is to buy um, a broccoli because the government is subsidizing feedlot beef and Iowa corn in favor of these products they know will make us obese and supporting the what we've got is in the healthcare industry based on, in, on buying insurance. And so the, the profit of the healthcare and the profit of the corn producers and uh, 
trans fats and all of this. It's, it's deliberate. There's, there's, you know, very few people in America who have watched any of this who don't recognize that it's not an accident. And um, I would simply agree. And um, it's interesting. I, I'll tell my version of that because when I was at university, I can remember sitting on the floor of a room in the halls of residence in year one. And there was a dozen of us. So, and we were having that debate that students in those days had a lot, which was, is it a capitalist plot? Yeah, conspiracy, or is it cock-up? And I took the view in my naive youth that the capitalists weren't clever enough to do this. Yeah, I was wrong. Yeah, you've just given a heap of evidence for that. The evidence I would cite is Adam Curtis's documentaries in particular, and you can get them on, on YouTube, The Century of the Self. The first one, which deals with a man called Bernays. Bernays was Freud's nephew. And he used psychoanalytical theory when he emigrated to America to invent advertising and public relations. We're talking about the period between the two great wars, the two world wars. And the, the, he, Adam Curtis interviews this very, very old American industrialist who by this stage has smoked himself into laryngeal cancer. And he's got one of these mechanical voice boxes. So he's speaking like this, you see. And, um, and he's being interviewed and he says, by he says, the 1920s American factories were making more stuff than American people needed. So we said to Bernays, can you get people to buy things they don't really need? And Bernays says, sure. Yeah? And they, they illustrate exactly what you're talking about. The deliberate manipulation and crucially expansion of markets into things that we don't really need to actually do us harm. And, and smoking is the example that was given on the program. And Bernays said to the, to the cigarette man, he says, almost any male who can smoke in the 1920s was smoking. But there were hardly any female smokers. So they target the female market. And on Labor Day in the big parade in New York, he persuades a group of debutantes to wear glamorous clothing and sequester uh, cigarettes on, their, on themselves. And as they walk past the press corps, they simultaneously and ostentatiously take out cigarettes and light them. And if he feeds, Bernays feeds to the press corps the, the headline, Torches of Freedom. Yeah? Isn't that clever? So he ties together cigarette smoking with female glamour and female emancipation. And so the idea is born that smoking, if you're a young woman, is a, is a progressive modern freedom. Yeah? It's liberating. Yeah? And for those who are analytically inclined, it's also something to do with penis envy, but we'll not go there, all right? Um, but you can see what's going on here, is that the, these forces will push these things, will damage our well-being. But the point I would make is that there have been people making these arguments against the force of industry in America and in Europe for a long, long time. These industries are not going to change until the circumstances change. And I'm arguing they are already changing. So the days in which the world can afford to let that manipulation of the food chain happen, I suspect are limited. I don't say it's going to be easy, and it may be painful, but these forces will need to be confronted. Um, what you started to describe is actually the questioning area I wanted to go into, which is the issue of systems rather than individual behaviour, but also how you tackle that on a global basis. Because one of the things I'm, I'm, well, I suppose there was a bit of news this morning that intrigued me, and that was Diageo, the 
um, yeah. you know, drinks giant, um, about to provide funding to support PR and awareness raising work around fetal alcohol syndrome. And it was this question of where, where exactly is the leverage? Where does that change come from and where, how does it get controlled and managed on a global basis? And when you raise the issue of consciousness, I mean, that seems to me, first of all, I, I can support the idea of individual consciousness and actually mass consciousness, but the question for me is, is there time for that, given the, the scale of the change and, uh, that's required? So it's those sorts of areas that I, I kind of wanted you to say a little bit about. Okay. Um, it's a very important issue, and I will not pretend to you at all that I have this worked through. Okay? And I have colleagues of mine who would say that we should work on the system and only the system because that's where the leverage matters and we need to confront the diagios of this world and that would be the only way forward. Um, all I know is that I've spent my professional career doing that kind of stuff and sometimes it feels like pissing in the wind, you know. Um, it, it, it's not very successful. These forces are powerful and they buy the political process. So that's why I've become excited about what I've been trying to share here. Not that I think it's, and I think there are problems and inconsistencies and dangers in what I'm advocating. I'm not advocating a blueprint or a solution. But if you went back to the Middle Ages, let's just keep using that metaphor, okay? And you said the problem here is the feudal system. It was like a caste system. You know, if you were born into it, you couldn't move, you couldn't get an education or whatever. We'll need to bring down the feudal system. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's actually what happened in the end. But it wasn't because someone took a full-on attack on the feudal system. It was that the circumstances of the inner world and the outer world, the realities changed. And the world changed with it. So I guess what I'm saying is, can we help to accelerate that positive change as much as possible? While at the same time campaigning against those tobacco and food and other alcohol and, and other forces that are making our lives more dangerous and unhealthy. Yes, do both. But I think to imagine that we're going to make the world safer and healthier by defeating these forces under the current circumstances, I, I, I'm not sure. But I want to ask much more basic question about, you know, diet. I'm very much concerned about young people, especially my grandson. And what really annoys me are school dinners. <laughs> Because when my grandson was in a second year in a primary, the council decided to rip the kitchens out. You know, there's no kitchens in school, in case somebody doesn't know. The mills come from, I think, a company called Cordia. They are then all microwave for the children, right? Most of the children obviously don't go for school dinners because they are pathetic. There is often not enough meals anyway because they don't have to pre-book the meals, so they just buy it, you know, on the day so nobody knows how many meals will be consumed. Uh, once my grandson brought orange juice that looked absolutely brown in a packet, and, you know, I mean, the meals that they are served are really pathetic. There are, there is about 10% of reasonably okay meals, but anyway, my question is this. So there are children who maybe didn't have a breakfast, and if they did have one of those cornflakes, which we know is the packaging has about the same worth as the cornflakes, then they have this pathetic meal full of additives, microwave, very often they have the same meal at home because we now lost the culture eating. The same eating at school, dinner table is no longer the question. They're not even allowed to use knife and forks. It's all plastic in case they hit each other. You know, so there's no culture of any sort. So this is, 
And if you look at them, they drink these drinks like uh, iron brew, which is full of caffeine, so it's also very addictive. So, you know, where is it all going to? You know, the health, it's not only obesity, because these are all, oh, no, I agree. you know, and yeah. so these are practical things, but why this, this kind of things happen? Okay. You know, why, why don't children still eat proper meals at a proper setting? Because often the school was the only place they sure. had these meals sure. in, in um, the past. And, and this is another perfect illustration of what I've been trying to talk about. So let's just take it. Poor school dinners. Why are they poor? Because they're mass-produced, often in another part of the country. Do you know that all the hospital meals are made in Wales? Yeah? Child brought up to Scotland because they were the cheapest contract. Right? It's, it's just appalling, isn't it? Yeah? Um, so there's, there's work to be done, and there are people, there are good teachers, there are good nutritionists, there are good health promotion people who are working on the ground trying to make that better. And I'm all for that. But my experience doing it for 25 years is that you can only take that so far, because at the level above that, the director of finance is going to give the, the contract to the company that offers the cheapest price. And that's why it comes in and it's got average or sometimes poor standards. And that's what we call economism. Yeah? And what's more, the, real, the reason it's cheap is because it's done in mass and transported in mass, but the, the cost to the environment in terms of food miles and carbon is great, but they're not paying for that. So it doesn't seem like it's expensive. So that's why I'm arguing that if we could get to a point where we, where we chip away and undermine economism, then the rules would change. And the director of finance could give a local food retailer, producer, the opportunity of getting fresh produce and brought in and decide that he can pay more. He would need permission to pay more for that. And we would need to be willing to pay more taxes. Because yeah, that would be. But it's not impossible. And I think we'll only get there when we get really, really appalled by food miles and carbon cost and this mass-produced culture. Um, so change is possible, but it would need all these layers. That would be my analysis. Uh, while Ken's making his over here, I'm looking for yep, one here after. MDLs. Does MDL up in the Met team want to ask any questions? Because we don't I, want to miss you out. That's I feel okay. sorry for people up there. That's okay. We, but over, over, down here first, um, coming to you in the pink shirt next. And anyone else? Anything? Hi, for all these good uh, words, um, I'm most impressed for all the things that have been said. I think there is something... I have been thinking about, and that is, I believe there is something in us, and I call it the greed gene. Now, in, in the olden times, you know, the Stone Age and so on, and also in modern primitive or more traditional societies, there isn't a constant food supply. You've got, sometimes you've got, you know, you, you killed a deer and you've got to eat the whole thing, so you're very, very greedy, and you eat, and your tummy is full, and you know, you probably put on five pounds in weight or something, but then the, the bad time comes and you lose it all and you're as skinny as a rake. This was what it was like in the olden times. And still in some parts of the world it is like that. Don't let's forget these people. Now, what has happened with all this overproduction and stuff all over the place and you can go and buy whatever you like and the more the better and if you have no money you just borrow more and you go to the money shop and you buy money and it's all wonderful, isn't it? And there is no limit to this greed within people. Uh, 
there isn't even God who tells us we mustn't be greedy and we must uh, look after our neighbors and things like that. So we can do what we like. And not only that, people want it, they want it now, and they want all of it, and when they've got it, they want more. So they're never satisfied. People are never satisfied. And it goes on and on and like that. Now, one of my children was in Malawi doing a holiday job as a student. And she observed, as I did a long time ago in Uganda and Kenya, that there were lots of children who were absolutely destitute, starving in rags and all that. Uh, Many of them are now orphans because of AIDS. And she said to me, but mom... Those children, they are just so happy. They're just so happy. In spite of the poverty, in spite of disease, in spite of homelessness, in spite of everything, they are so happy. Now, going around Glasgow, as I do, on buses and on foot, uh, I do observe, yes, there is an increasing number of grossly obese people, not only obese, but grossly obese people, and which is very sad to see. I also see there's a lot of unhappiness in the population. And I look around and I look at places, not so much the West End, but maybe Mary Hill and other places, and they are large, so polluted, they are so full of litter, so full of rubbish, so full of neglect, so full of everything else, and fumes and this and that, and the houses look awful, and the people look sad, and the people look ill, And this is just terrible. Now, looking at all this, what we've created, is really sad. Now, I also am aware of the fact there are lots of families. There's nobody anymore, no grandmother, no auntie, no uncle, no mom, no dad, who can cook, who can mend, who can repair, who can budget. It's all kind of topsy-turvy and all horrible. Where do these children learn anything? How do they acquire these skills? And the other thing is, When it comes to employment, um, there was a project on Orkney, and they were going to employ local people. And the equally project in other parts of the country, employing local people, trying to. And they employ local people. It was something to do with wave power, no, uh, tidal power. And the local people, they either didn't turn up for the job, or they were drunk, They couldn't do the job because they had no skills. So people had to be brought to Scotland from Eastern Europe to do these jobs. And that is really demeaning. That is just a most horrible thing, a most horrible statement, sort of showing what our societies actually got itself into. That's locally speaking. But the greed gene is a global thing. And the rich who want more are actually the poorest people on earth because as soon as they have more, they want still more and still more. It's a complete, it goes into infinity, this greed for more and more and more. And the result of it is not happiness. It's actually unhappiness. Yeah. I mean, a whole series of very powerful points there. Um, Your point about the greed gene is absolutely right. We took our colleague here before and thought about your ancestors. If we go back to the hunter-gatherer time, and as you say, the antelope has been killed, they're spitting it on the fire, and your ancestor goes, no thank you, I'll have berries tonight. (laughs) Um, That person died in the winter. Uh, And the one that ate greedily 
survived to become your ancestor. So we, we are, yes, we are, all of us, everyone in this room, the offspring of greedy, greedy people. Yeah? That's true. And it's been a survival instinct. So you're not wrong about that. Equally so, I don't think you're wrong at all. You, 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 you're very graphic in the manifestations of what late modernity does, whether it's de-skilling for work or the fragmentation of families or the various examples that you gave. Absolutely true. Okay? So that, that as I say, was in, our, in, in, in the story I was trying to tell when I got to that point of being pretty depressed about it all. The point I would make, though, because we always need to remember this, if I took you back to Glasgow in 1830, you would be a lot more depressed. I mean, seriously, you would see, you know, a measles epidemic killing one in four of children. Yeah? You would see people literally maimed in the street without social security. You know, And we, we got out of that. Yeah? It must have been pretty tough when there wasn't enough wood to keep your fires going and you had to go and find work in those cities. People got through that. Yeah? Do you know about mirror neurons? Let's just spend a second on mirror neurons. Mirror neurons were discovered in a lab in Italy. And what they were doing, they've got all these fancy brain scans these days. And they had the brain scan machine on a monkey. And they were looking at the bits of the monkey's brains that fire up when it opened a nut and ate it. And in the middle of the experiment, another one of the team came in and he picked up one of the nuts that was lying about and ate it. And the monkey's brain fired up in exactly the pattern as if the monkey had been eating it himself. And this is what empathy is. Every single one of us in this room doesn't intellectualize empathy. We actually feel it. Our brains fire in the same way as other people when we see them. That's, that's why when we see someone in a difficult circumstance, it's not that we have an intellectual construct about we feel what they feel. So yes, we've got a greed gene, but we've also got mirror neurons. And the question is whether we allow and we create circumstances to allow that greed instinct or that empathy instinct to triumph. Um, I've lost sight of your minister, but she was here doing practical work a minute or two ago. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what you do here, isn't it? Yeah? That's, that's been the great faith spiritual project, is recognizing that we are that complex amalgam of many different things. And that which we feed, nourish, and make structurally possible is what transcends. I think I'd uh, agree with that point that yes, we can have both, we can have greed, we can have uh, empathy. Uh, I'd just like to pick up on a couple of points that have been uh, made though, that, I mean, the reason we have the system we have is because it's given us cheap flights and cheap clothes and the internet in our pockets and digital televisions and all the rest of it. And the reason we have consumerism is because we like stuff. People like stuff, uh, that seems to be part of us as well. The reason we uh, go to McDonald's is because chicken McNuggets are delicious and broccoli, frankly, isn't. <laughs> and, as and may or may not cause E. coli. <laughs> <laughs> and when you think of things like um, you know, depression and what have you, I mean, we do have a benefit system. You talked about people working too much, but we do have a benefit system that traps people, and people are affected, lots of people 
are effectively bribed to stay poor. They trade in their self-respect, their self-worth and all the rest of it, dramatically reduce their human contact and all of these things, I would argue, are part of uh, depression. Um, you know, and that's something government should be addressing. And if I just pick up one other point, uh, you know, about this idea that you can have both, if you look at people like Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, various others, been fantastically successful, made huge sums of money, vast contributions to the economies uh, of countries all over the uh, world and enhanced uh, all of our lives in lots of ways, and you give various other examples, what do they find now is that actually you've made this success, you've uh, contributed all uh, in these sorts of ways through business, but that actually the greatest happiness is giving that away, is putting billions, as Gates is doing, into immunization programs. And maybe that's the kind of thing we should be promote, promoting more. You know, another luxury yacht isn't going to make you happier, but actually, you know, setting up things that are going to transform people's lives actually would. Yeah, I mean, I think your instincts are in accord with the evidence. The evidence is this, that we do like stuff for the same reason that we like eating a bit of the antelope that's been... Yeah, we like stuff. And more stuff can make us a lot happier, to begin with, at any rate. But the evidence is very clear that once you get past a certain level, more stuff doesn't make you happier. Indeed, there's something called choice anxiety. Yeah? You get presented with too many choices... Particularly if you're what they call a maximizer, where you, you know which magazine, and, you, and then you choose, should I really have chosen that one? Oh, damn. Yeah? And so it goes on. And that's the world that we're in. So yes, it was a very human and sometimes humane instinct that got us here, but it's gone too far. And it's like the rest of it. Will we change? Will we give up our consumer culture to make us happier? Because all the evidence is that we get more happiness from giving and receiving, from human relationships, from doing worthwhile work. That's what makes us really happy. If, I mean, there's lots of studies I could, I could cite you to show that. But there's a very clever industry constantly drawing us back here. So that's the dilemma that we're in. Do we show evidence that we're willing to soften or even abandon this for the sake of this? No, we don't. So that's the dilemma we're in. What I, again, just to repeat myself, feel really excited by is it's going to have to change. There'll be a day, you know, when the world is hotter and oil is $500 a barrel and they look back at the waste of our lives and say, what were these people thinking of? And it will seem silly. Just as we look back and wonder how on earth some people in history, so every, every, you know, we're just like anybody else. So that's, I think, that, so your instincts, I think, capture also what the evidence shows. Thank you. Um, that's really all we've got time so far, so can I just, uh, before I say a few other things, I, I thank you to Phil Hanlon.